and welcome to another episode of A Spoonful of Recovery. Just a few trigger warnings as usual. We will be talking about symptoms of invisible illnesses. We will also be talking about mental health and suicide. So if you struggle with any of those or find them challenging, this episode may not be for you. So today I have Steve on the podcast. Steve, welcome. Yeah, morning, Shayla. Good to, good to see you again. Yes, uh, Steve Phillip, a, a young man of some 62 years old now, apparently. <laughs> a background for, for many years in senior management in the automotive industry and then consultancy. Um, I was a director of a leadership and management training company for a number of years. And then um, in around about 2008, 2009, set up my own consultancy business. Uh, really training large companies and smaller companies how to get the most from social media, mainly mainly link, LinkedIn. And uh, that was my my kind of background over 30, 30 odd, 40 years. And I was I was doing that exact work around social media training with a, a large firm in the Midlands on December the 4th of 2019. And that was the day when, as I got back in my car to, to drive back home, from the Midlands to, to North Yorkshire, around about a three hour drive. I, I got a call that essentially changed my life. And, and that was a call coming in from my son, Jordan, his girlfriend, called to say that she'd arrived at his house to find that he'd, he'd taken his own life. And uh, at that moment, of course, everything kind of unraveled and, and my world changed completely, really. Yeah, and I'm so sorry to hear that. And I think that's the LinkedIn post that I saw and I just thought, wow and I have to say looking at Jordan I would say he had it all I mean he would have been someone that I probably would have envied because he looked like he just had the perfect life so were there any sort of signs where you thought Jordan may be struggling yeah you know it's, it's interesting isn't it when you're when you're close to somebody and you know the, the background to to, to Jordan's mental health issues was that he was diagnosed with anxiety and then clinical depression in 2015. Uh, so some four years, uh, four and a half years beforehand. And, you know, he was an adult. He was 34 when he took his own life. He had a, you know, great relationship uh, with his partner, had his own house, had a good job with the Independent Office of Police Conduct. He was an officer there, previously worked with the Home Office in Immigration. And as you, as you rightly say, to, to everybody on the outside, a huge circle of friends that he had, it's a very close one. He was the lad that, that, you know, most people envied. He was a good looking lad. He had the dance moves, apparently, at all the wedding <laughs> events. Found a, a photograph of just one of those moves uh, this weekend when I was looking through. And yeah, his, his friends did look up to him as, as the guy that had everything. He was also the guy that everyone would kind of go to if they were struggling because he was he showed a huge amount of empathy and support for people that were not doing too well and I've kind of learned over the last couple of years that this is quite typical of people who struggle themselves with mental illness they're they usually very you know show a huge amount of empathy to to others so did I see the signs in retrospect yes at the time because Jordan was independent he didn't live that far away from me only 20 minutes away really in Leeds we didn't see each other every week or even necessarily every month. He'd get on with his life. and But we were in touch, um, obviously, each week. And there were no obvious signs when he was struggling. We knew he had depression. We knew he dealt with that by going to see his GP to get antidepressants. Those antidepressants seemed to do 
job for him. We, we were aware that he struggled to look forward to things and certain events and, and he could be a little moody at times. And that was that Jordan or was that the illness? We were never quite, quite sure. But then as, as he didn't, he didn't go for any talking therapy or anything like that. So he was on the face of it, managing his yeah. depression. We knew he had low points and, and we'd be in touch more often. And in that, you know, final few weeks, he was really, really struggling in a, in a very low point. But I think one of the challenges for, for me, coming back to your question, were there any signs? Almost embarrassingly, I have to say my, my level of knowledge about mental health and what the signs were that I should be looking for. I often say to people at that point was probably a solid two out of 10 yeah. on the scale. You know, what was it I was supposed to be looking at? Was this just Jordan having a bad day or an off time? So, but in retrospect, knowing what I know now and the huge amount of research and time I've spent in this area since then, yeah, there were clearly signs. And, and I know, you know, just this weekend, a bit of kind of reminiscing, looking back through photos and things that I'm putting together for another project. There were various screen grabs of WhatsApp messages that I'd saved going back a couple of years. And, you know, I read those messages now with a very different head on. And yeah, there, there were lots of signs in the language and the words he was using, really. I mentioned envy because not that I'm anyone to be envied, but I know what it's like when I now started opening up. And because I've traveled a fair amount, everyone was like, but you, you travel the world. What have you got to be ungrateful for? Are you ungrateful? Oh, come on, just smile. You know, they almost can't believe it. You worked for a big tech company. You had your own business. Like, well, you know, why are you like depressed or why are you at crisis point? And I would just thought, oh, wow. And then you kind of feel guilty as well. Because then I'm like, who do, you, who do you tell? And I have to say, you are always at the top of my LinkedIn. <laughs> you do a brilliant job of LinkedIn. But you're doing a lot of, work around the Jordan legacy how did that sort of come about yeah it was a really interesting development and I think you know you mentioned right at the beginning of our conversation Shayla about the the article that I published just three weeks after Jordan died and, and that was my way of trying to get out all that was going on for us as a family it was just a you know horrific situation you know we didn't know anyone else that had lost someone to suicide we didn't know whether other people went through this so I wanted to say, look, this, this is just horrendous. And the, the audience I was really speaking to with that article was anyone else who was thinking of taking their own lives, that I hope they would read that and go, God, I can't leave that kind of mess behind for my loved ones and, and family. You know, my naivety at the time, I, I don't think I would change anything now. I think I would write that article again. But, you know, I'm very conscious of laying guilt on other people. But, of course, this was more of a general article rather than targeting someone specifically about saying you know how could you consider taking your own life look at you know what you'll leave behind but it was a way of it was a way of trying to reach those people and it did yeah. I decided to receive messages from people who said you know I've read this I can't possibly go ahead and do what I was considering doing and then I started to get other messages from people who who were really struggling um I remember in those early days, I'd be jumping on phone calls with people from the States or wherever guys that were struggling and kind of felt I had to be there with some kind of cape on to kind of rescue people. And, you know, quite clearly that became overwhelming very, yeah. very quickly. So what we needed to do was uh, I needed a way of just being able to respond to people that messaged me 
without being rude and kind of fobbing them off, but but kind of say, look, this is me. I'm a grieving father. Don't really know a lot about mental health, but I but I got some resources together from other people that I knew that were experts. And I would share a message, just, just kind of signposting people. And But I think what happened during that time was I, I started to realize that I had this voice on LinkedIn. I've been using LinkedIn as a platform for 11 years and already had a decent following, nothing to the level it is now. But so I knew I had a voice and I knew people were approaching me for help and guidance and just to, because my story resonated with them. So I thought, where do I go beyond just LinkedIn? And, and that's really where the Jordan legacy came from. That I think very quickly, I realized I wasn't going to go back to consultancy. I, I, you know, a number of things happened to you physically and mentally after such a trauma, but one is just a complete lack of desire to get back into the business world and do what I did. It just didn't seem any point really. So what was I going to do? You know, and a good friend said to me, you've got a couple of choices here. One is you sit on the sofa with a bottle, clearly an option at that stage, I felt, um, or you'll get out there and do something. He said, I kind of know you and what you like. He said, I think it will be the latter. So I thought about it, talked to the family, and I thought, right, this is what I'm, I'm, I'm going to do. I'm going to learn whatever I can do. I'm going to get some resources up and, and we'll create something. I didn't know was it going to be a charity, a foundation, didn't know what it was going to be. But ultimately, it became a website that turned into a community interest company by the October of 2020. But right through the summer, we were we got a website up and the Jordan Legacy name was was born, really. Yeah. And I have to say that article did help me. And I was one of the people that did message you. And uh, you did very kindly voice note. And when you're at that crisis point, I can't speak on um, behalf of other people, but it was just desperation. And the access I just didn't have. The people around me were just like, you need to go to a psych ward. What's going on? Just stop talking about it. Because they, they weren't trained to deal with someone who's at crisis point. Don't really know what to say. But when you're in that situation, you just want support or you just want it to end. You don't want to be that burden. And I did feel like that. What was it like to kind of receive those messages? And I know um, when we were at the conference, which we'll talk about a bit later on, this girl beat me to it, but she shouted, you know, you know, I messaged you and I'm still here. Yeah. And I was like, hold back the tears. hold back. And I was like one of those people who was going to shout. And I was like, she beat me to it. But, you know, you clearly, you're clearly getting very raw messages. And I just about have started to receive those. And there is almost that I need to be there. I need to save you. How do you sort of deal with that? Yeah, I mean, gosh, I, I mean, I, I was looking before we came on air today, uh, actually, I was going back through our, our messages from early, you know, 2020, November, I think it was. And, and, and yeah, you, you, you know, clearly you were really not in a good, good place at all. And then gradually I saw the improvement and, and, and things start to happen. But yeah, you're right. That, that uh, comment, uh, I know the lady in question that you mentioned who, who shouted, shouted it out, um, yeah, how do you manage that? I think, as I said, initially, you want to respond in a very personal way to absolutely everybody. And I, and I have made a point, you know, and I still do today, when people message me on LinkedIn, particularly with those kind of messages, I, I will reply yeah. uh, with a personal message. Um, and, um, you know, it takes me a few days sometimes, you know, to, to get there. I think I put a LinkedIn post 
the week before last that's got kind of got three quarters of a million views and hundreds of comments and just getting back to the comments sometimes is an impossibility yeah. but but the message is for sure but i do read all comments and again there's one or two where i think i kind of do need to respond here but that in itself becomes a job and a commitment which can be really quite wearing and overwhelming um i consider myself to be quite a resilient type of individual um i've had to kind of treat the work i do almost like a project and getting up and going to work which sounds a little bit mercenary on the one hand but i know if i let my emotions run riot with every single message with every single post i share with every single bit of work and conversation or or today even you know if i let my head go to that place to what happened that day really let it go uh, start to visualize it I, i'd be a wreck um yeah. so i have to kind of keep that focus and whenever i respond to those messages it is about right what's their situation what are they going through what can i say or do that will be of some benefit it's not about me now yeah it, it, it it's that. about them so that's kind of how i've had to 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 deal with it and on some occasions i've had to kind of respond very personally but then have a fairly generic kind of signposting message to our website and um you know we even occasionally danielle who's now working with me my daughter you know she'll step into the account and just send a message from the, the jordan legacy team or from her if i'm just kind of overwhelmed with with, with messages but we, we respond to everything yeah that's amazing and I have to say, yeah, you are very resilient. I was always like, how is he doing this? How I can just about cope with life? And yeah, and I think you do have to treat it like a job because the more I talk about having a condition and then talking about, you know, mental health, there's sometimes no switching off until you your head hits that pillow. It's And then, then you wake up and it's the first thing and then the messages and everything. So I volunteer somewhere where we just cook meals and for four hours I switch off. I barely talk about myself. I'm just like, yeah, hi, yeah, I, I work in tech and that's it. Because the anger wouldn't leave and the emotions and I wasn't moving forward. So yeah, it's, it's definitely something I think that's important. Yeah, just, just to add to that, I think that's, that's a really good point you made, Taylor, that you know, I I've kind of make a real commitment in the evenings to switching off. You know, there was a time where I'd be on LinkedIn, as you said, till your head hits the pillow, and then you're on your phone first thing in the morning, you know, having your cup of tea, look, looking at the messages. Um, and, and then weekends, you know, this just became all consuming. Um, so I had to put some boundaries, well, I was told I had to put some boundaries in uh, <laughs> for people close to home. Uh, so, yeah, it, it, it's, I, I might just dip in and have a little bit of a look at LinkedIn occasionally during the evening. But most messages I'll wait till I'm into the kind of working day to respond to unless there's a, an urgent request uh, and someone's clearly in crisis. And the weekends, yeah, generally I'll keep those those free. And, and you have to because you just cannot continue at that kind of pace mentally or physically, really. Yeah. And we've had a global pandemic while we're still sort of in one. Um, how do you think the conversation around mental health has changed? Because I remember the first two weeks, I was getting WhatsApp messages like, if anybody needs to talk, here's the NHS website. There was a lot being said. How do you think that kind of, that conversation's developed? Yeah, it's been really interesting over the last two years, because it all happened just as the pandemic was about to, to start, of course. I've delivered lot, lots of talks to organisations, 
companies of all shapes and sizes and, and it's been very much on the the agenda well-being and mental health now i think there's a recognition that people struggled as a result of the pandemics and lockdowns um there were some uh, odd benefits in as well to to the lockdown and the kind of community spirit that took place there um there was this belief and in fact lots of social media content suggesting that suicides were increasing significantly as a result of lockdown i think there's one famous one that said suicides had gone up by 200 percent all untrue all the evidence all the statistics all the research from the ons and everybody has actually showed a slight fall during the last year year and a half it, it's only five percent fall so it's nothing to start um, cheering about at all but um uh, and, and some of that lack of increase um, and slight fall, it was seen that people would be more supportive and look, kind of looking out for each other a little bit more. But yeah, the conversation has, I think, done two things. I think it's it's shown people who really do give a damn about mental health and mm -hmm. suicide prevention who've really come out there and done some great things. That's both individuals and companies. But it's also highlighted those that still go through a kind of tick box. Yeah. exercise that that are doing it because hang about everyone's talking about it we yeah. should be doing it and look it's really easy to see through those yes companies yeah. in terms of, of of what they're doing so i think we've seen a, a huge increase in the discussion around mental health which is great where we're at now is we need to open up the discussion around suicide and we need to normalize that conversation in the same way that we've done a really good job i think with mental health in the last two years yeah, I did find that everyone was talking about it and I was like, that's great, but what are you doing? Because I I struggled with the practical stuff and as someone who was at crisis point, I just called Samaritans for four months and even the people around me were like, I'm always here if you need to talk and it was just like a copy and paste and it's like, not a attack on them, but I guess it's, well, we're all talking about it, let's just get these messages out and when you do, and I know companies that I reached out to and they just were like, all right, then bye. Okay, oh yeah, no, just talk to someone else. All right then, yeah. Uh, like they didn't know how to handle it. And I think it's really important that people take those baby steps because I saw that could have gone the other way. Like someone can literally be at a crisis point and you're going, I ain't got time or go talk to someone else. Or I got told I was too much. And this is probably why I then became silent about it. Yeah. Because then everyone's going, oh, stop going on about it. And I'm like, well, I'm not a trend but then you feel like a burden and then you go on TikTok and there's some people going, yeah, yeah, mental health. And I'm like, no, but do you actually understand because you wouldn't be putting that out there and it becomes kind yeah. of and insensitive. Uh, you, you've made a really valid point. And I think there comes a point where the conversation has to translate into what are we actually doing about this? And both for mental health and, and suicide prevention. But when, when I first really started to put the Jordan legacy together, and if you consider what is the Jordan legacy, because we're not a crisis website or helpline, we're not a fundraising charity, you know, we don't put on all kinds of events for that purpose. With the team that, I, you know, small team still that I have around me, we were really clear in the beginning that what we wanted to do was look at the practical solutions. We, we even we coined a phrase that we've used still still use occasionally we called it the business of suicide prevention if we treated it like a business and had really clear objectives what difference could we make we knew that none of us were psychologists or mental health professionals but what we did understand from the research was that the act of suicide is a practical act 
whatever whatever leads someone to that point it is a practical act so what are the practical interventions you have to put in place to prevent that from happening so we started to look at communities what could be done in schools and workplaces and sports clubs and different areas we started to look in workplaces what, what does that mean from changing hr policies and the way difficult conversations are had with employees over redundancy for example or you know furlough or whatever it might be you know what are the safeguarding things that are put in place there we started to look at the, the digital tech world and say you know what what practical applications are already being used what could be used and then we looked at the infrastructure community the construction firms the architects surveyors who are designing the bridges and the buildings and the car parks that sadly people are, are choosing to end their own lives and other outdoor spaces what are the practical things that could be done there to design out the capability for suicide in future buildings and, and, and bridges so that's where we've come from and as you know you know we've run lots of events uh, you very well attended panel discussion events to to talk about what is happening what are the practical things that can be done we know network rail for example doing incredible amount of work and training with their staff and um you know a lot of people think that you know most suicides happen on railway lines and, and it's purely because of the the media behind it in fact fewer than five percent of all suicides happen on the railways but it's got this bad rap if you like for being you know bus yeah. where railways are where people go to end their lives you know rather than catch a train you know so they've done an incredible amount of work so that is really where our focus is it's it's around what can we do practically as a community and in workplaces to prevent someone from getting to that point yeah, I think it's really good to highlight prevention rather than cure, because obviously when it's too late, it's too late and everyone mourns and what could we have done? Um, and I think it's interesting what you said about the buildings, because there's um, there was a building in New York, I think it's like Manhattan, that had to get shut down because a lot of people were taking their own lives. And I was just like, oh my God. Yes, I, I know the building you mean. It was a, an interesting looking yeah. uh, building. Uh, one of the architects, in fact, uh, who was on the panel discussion, shared that image i think of that that built sorry in fact it was another event i was invited on uh, and that was shared um initially as a linkedin post but yes they had to close the building down you think you know it, it, are we considering you know whenever we design or build or put a process in place in work are we really thinking about mental health um i've got to be careful how much i share here but you know as you are probably aware i have a lot of meetings with the department of health and social care around mental health plans and suicide prevention plans and i know that there are discussions going on now within government about how all policies that created that before that policy is approved by committee they have to look and, and see what impact that policy may have on the mental health of whoever that policy may affect so discussions are going on right now to, which may lead do something like that that happening that you would have to be approved by committee that this is not going to have a negative impact on mental health these are the practical things yeah. that can can be done doesn't need a you don't need anology as someone said the other day to be able to do that you just need to think is what i'm about to do going to impact on someone's mental health in any way have i given this some thought and something you said right in the beginning we all need to be doing our bit really which is where as i know we're going to talk about the baton of hope comes yeah, yeah. in. yeah and i just think like representation as well so 
I'd say we both speak about mental health quite a bit. When you see articles or representation in films and the media, like what are your initial thoughts? Do you think they do a good job? Have you seen anything where you think that's really highlighting the point or do you just look at stuff and think, please stop? It's interesting, yeah. It, it, I, I, the will have been, and I'm, I am aware that I will have watched whether it's dramas uh, around mental health, I have to say that in the main, and I don't know whether there's been a seed change here over the last few years, but I have to say increasingly it's been well represented in drama on, yeah. on TV, I think really, really well. You know, the media, I'm seeing increased coverage around mental health. I think we just the other day we saw kind of two back-to-back -back articles on BBC Breakfast, one with the, the ex-English international rugby player who, who's now got early stage onset Alzheimer's, probably related, they believe, to his rugby career. Then, then immediately after that was the interview with Sam Allardyce and Andy Burnham and, and other people around football and mental health. So, I, I yeah, it, it, again, the conversation has been had. It's really, really important. One of the things that slightly concerns me, and to answer your question, if you were going anywhere with this, I think I know where you were going with this, but I, I did get to a stage where I started to see all the celebrities, it's okay to talk, stuff coming out, and even I started to get a little weary of, I just felt it was too much of a throwaway thing, it's okay to talk, it's good to talk, and but, you know, and it's the big one was it's okay not to be okay. Yeah. But actually, it's not. Yeah. It's, it's not okay not to be okay. It's okay not to be okay and then go and do something about it or get some help or support someone. But but it almost said, and, and what we know started to happen within schools, because, you know, had a lot of conversations with the education sector, we started to see kids almost wearing their mental health as a badge of honour. Yes. It's yeah. kind of, it's okay for me not to be okay. Yeah, in fact, not only is it okay for me not to be okay, I'm actually quite unique and a little bit different. So I think I'll remain being not okay. So I think we, yeah, it, it, as you said earlier, we have to transition beyond just talking about it to, okay, so what are we actually going to do about it? Because talking saves lives to a point. We know that. And talking to someone who's struggling goes beyond just talking about it. It goes to actually practically making that effort to sit down and talk with someone who's who's yeah. struggling. So yeah, really interesting. Yeah, I had someone say to me, it's okay not to be okay, Shayla. Like it was an advert. <laughs> I was like, so you want me to be at crisis point? So this is okay then, yeah? I can just live like this and just not want to live. This is normal, we're normalizing it. And I think it, it, it triggers me. I'm not gonna name the, the person because I don't wanna turn it into it. Um, you know a podcast about him but like a media person who talks about it's okay not to be okay and kindness but then butchers women and almost talks about mental health get on with it get up I don't want to hear about your and I just thought you're a hypocrite like you just you ex clear example of jumping on that bandwagon and yeah then, yeah yeah just get on with it which leads me on to talk about men and mental health there's been a lot of talk about men are more likely to take their own lives because they've got a kind of you know it's not okay for them to talk about mental health is a sign of weakness where do you sort of see that conversation developing 
Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I think we, we have to be, firstly, really cautious of going down very specific, diverse routes as far as suicide is concerned, because I think it's easy to forget other groups uh, yeah. then. You know, and, and I'm, I'm one for, you know, I, I appreciate we have hugely diverse cultures from gender to culture, to, you know, to race, to sexuality, you know, all kinds of things. I kind of have this view we're all human. You know, yeah. at the end of the day but then we suddenly get this tunnel focus on a particular demographic or a group and then my you know my thought is well what about you know this other group so so men is a case in point we, we know the statistics that say of the approximately 6,700 people we lose in the United Kingdom each year to suicide 75 percent of those are men so immediately what happens is we go right men are the issue and, and young men under 35 we know it's the biggest mm-hmm. killer well actually it's the biggest killer of young people under 35, not just young men. Um, so it's easy almost to forget about, you know, what women are going through. Uh, and if you look and say, well, why is it that 75% of all suicides are, are men? Again, it's complex, but one of the reasons that is often cited is the fact that men choose more aggressive methods mm. of taking their own lives. They are likely, therefore, to achieve that outcome compared with a, a woman um, there. So that's, that's one of the reasons. Again, it's far more complex uh, than that, of course. And we are starting to see an increase in fairness in women using more aggressive methods these days. There is a, a trend ch- changing there. But yes, the, this whole thing is that we, we do recognise, I think, that we have engendered in, in men over millennia, really, this belief that we are still supposed to be the breadwinners we're supposed to be the leaders we're supposed to be this tough male and that it's not okay to cry and it's not okay not to be okay so I think we are still living a legacy of that I I think we are shifting but it's going to take years not decades in my view to really change that completely but we do know that that is the feeling that most men have about themselves and whatever the media and the outside world would say, most men would believe I am supposed to be stronger than this. Um, uh, and that adds, you know, to, to the pressure that they, they feel. So, so yeah, so it, it, we are still dealing with, with that kind of issue and stigma, if you like. Yeah, I, I've come from a male-dominated house, so I know that even though my mum runs and everything, I do know that it was, you don't talk about your feelings. <laughs> we just don't do that. And I do get a lot more men messaging me now and going, I do have anxiety. And it's just kind of, but I know that on the outside, they would never appear to have anxiety or they wouldn't even say it. But they're mm-hmm. slowly, slowly kind of saying stuff which I think is... I, I had a really interesting... Um, you just reminded me of a really interesting example, and I'll be very careful not to, to give any identities away here, but somebody got in touch with me, really successful business guy, middle-aged business guy, who I'd known and done some work with several years years ago, just got in touch with me out of the blue. Short version of the story, just he told me he's, he's really struggling with depression at the moment. And But what was interesting was the very business-like way he had this conversation about his mental health with me yeah it really was like he was dealing with a business project without you know his messages to me were were brief just one sentence and uh, just very factual very much to the point 
and um, you know he he used one word that was really interesting in a very business-like way. He said, uh, "I have to say, you know, my depression is unbearable, but I'm bearing it." Wow, wow! And I went wow, and that was you know on a telephone conversation. So you know, I managed to signpost him uh, with with someone I think can, can really help, and and that seems to be going well at the moment. But but that is. You know, the, not typical necessary, but that's almost the, the, the extreme, isn't it? That this, I, I shouldn't be going through this. What's, what's wrong yeah. with me? But, but I don't want to let my emotions show to Steve. So I'm just going to deal with it in my usual kind of business-like manner, really. That just got me. I'm just like, I can understand that because you're mm. always like, I don't want to appear weak, but I, I'm just, I don't want to make it through tomorrow. Um, mm. Let's talk about Hope for Life. So you had a conference, which I attended. It was brilliant. How did that come about? Yeah, um, just one of those wild ideas you have, really. I ended up with so many of them in that first year. What, you know, what could we do? I think Hope, Hope for Life, first of all, came about because we, you know, we'd all been through COVID. There were some signs we were going to be coming out of lockdown and able to do something physically. We were also coming to the second anniversary of Jordan's death which you know on December the 4th of 2021 and it was kind of felt we'd been on a quite a journey and in some way we, we needed to kind of recognize Jordan's anniversary and if, in fact it was a conversation with Paul Vittles that is works really closely with me he's on the team one of our partners and we said look we're coming up to the second anniversary of Jordan's death we're all going to get together we'll all go to the cemetery you know we'll we'll do this it's you know, it's not the cheeriest of, of days, obviously. And and it was Paul that said, look, can I, can I, just something I want to run by you, can I challenge you a little bit in terms of how you recognize this this anniversary, just, just the way you approach it? So, well, you can have a go. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and he said, look, and Paul has extensive experience of working in the suicide prevention sector in Australia. He was involved in helping write government policy over there and, and strategy and all kinds of things. and um, he talked about some of the work they did over there in in turning the loss of people through suicide by working with those that were bereaved to create these events around hope you know a very different type of atmosphere of event and that's really where the idea came from could we put a conference on that was clearly on the topic of suicide but we would have inspiring speakers that would share their difficult journeys but end with this this message of hope and we'd have music there and we'd have other things going poetry and all other things going on and and the the growth house guys who just yeah. blew the blew the roof off the building it just uh yeah not to everyone's taste but to the majority i think it was just like i seriously i had no idea what to expect it, it was just <laughs> wild absolutely wild but brilliant and we achieved that uh i think from the feedback that we got out everyone said it was kind of beyond what i expected we didn't know what to expect but it was just like nothing had kind of been to before and look i'm not a conference organizer i literally you know with the rest of the team we just said let's put a conference on where we're going to have it let's get some speakers what else could we do and and it kind of all came together with a lot of goodwill from the speakers a lot of goodwill from people who donated their time and the the sound equipment and video and all that kind of stuff that, that happened and look you know 130 people that said yeah we'll we'll turn up in harrogate and a number online on linkedin live and um Facebook Live as well, so yeah, it, it was a it was a very very 
special day, I think, and the culmination of a kind of year and a half of, of a lot of work through the Jordan legacy and, and, and two years on from you know, Jordan's suicide. It was definitely brilliant. I was like, it's the first time I'm sort of traveling out on my own since becoming ill. And I was like, what am I going to be like? Am I going to be able to cope? What if I want to leave? How far away? You know, how long is it going to take to get home? Am I going to just cry in the back? Like, what's it going to be like? And I thought it was really inspiring. I thought the speakers were great. Johnny Benjamin is like one of my heroes. I actually like followed him from like his journey. So when I saw him, I was like, I'm going to see this guy speak. I'm so inspired. <laughs> what were some of the things that you had to think about in order to make that conference happen? Because not everyone would know about some of the care that was put into that yeah it was interesting kind of looking looking back really I, I think it was it was important to have a balance of speakers I, I didn't want it all to be people that had had mental health problems or attempted suicide that that was important so I, I wanted it to be a good mix I think we we had to ensure that the message of hope was there yeah uh through throughout and and beyond that yeah I, I think it it Maybe there was a clearer mission than that now. I'm trying to look back to last year, but you know that was really the obje objectives: keep hope at the forefront of everything that we're we're doing, really. And I wanted it to look and feel right, you know, from the room, the way the room was laid out, you know, and the the venue was great in terms of the kind of lighting they used and the staging and the way they they set it all all up there. And yeah, the fact we had, you know, it was important to feed people. I know they were paying a premium to come up but just make sure we had some food there for people and you know we were doing this on a goodwill and no budget yeah, <laughs> yeah. really so so yeah those those were the kind of things we 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 wanted to do I think importantly the bit that we kind of you know we, we recorded it all and shared it all but I think what was really important to us was that we we didn't achieve with the conference but I think we we are for sure going to do with the baton of hope is that you know, what was going to happen after that conference? You know, you send everyone away with a message. You know, what are you going to do to make a difference? We had a ballot box, didn't we? A, yeah. a box, you know, fill in the form. What are you going to do? And, you know, I've got that box still here uh, in the room. I've got all the sheets of paper with the commitments. And I, I haven't been able to chase up people and say, have you yeah. undertaken <laughs> your commitment? That was really down to you. You could have yeah. kind of you could have lit fire to it and let it disappear up the chimney in, in smoke, you know, as you used to do with Santa Claus or whatever. But yeah. Um, but that was really just to say, what are you going to do? And I'm sure people will have gone away. And some people did message me afterwards and you know, say, look, you know, I made this pledge and, you know, I have I have gone away and, and done something. And whether that was just booking themselves on a mental health first aid course or something like that. So, so you know, it, it I think it's really important with these events that there is some kind of legacy afterwards. I, I don't think we necessarily achieved that from that event, but, but going forward, it's, it's certainly in our plans. Yeah, uh, for, for the for the baton of hope. Yeah, and I think it was good that you can leave the room, and if anyone wanted to leave, which quite a few people did at points because it's quite triggering, there wasn't a whole "oh my god, someone's leaving." It was just that person's leaving and yeah. being respectful. Which I've had conversations with people where I'm like, you know, if we're going to talk about trauma, I need to know I can leave, and they're like, "But why?" And I'm like, "You clearly don't understand." And I was like, "It's just those little things." that make the difference of it being a safer place for people to talk about these issues 
Yeah, safe safe places are really, really important. I know a lot of companies have talked about having safe places now in their rooms. But, you know, I spoke to a company recently that said, you know, we, we've got this safe place now in the room, but when, whenever we want to go and use it, someone's in there having a meeting. Yeah. You know, it's just like, what? Yeah. <laughs> and, and not a meeting about what they should be meeting about, you know. Yeah. Just so, you know, are we just ticking boxes here or are we actually understanding why we've got this safe place there and, and, and yeah. that, you know, this is important? Yeah, really. definitely. And the button of herp you mentioned, what is that all about? Yeah, well, that's the, I keep waking up with the same question, actually. Um, <laughs> whose bright idea is this? Look, uh, really, this all came about after the Hope for Life conference. One of the people that attended with his wife, as someone's become a good friend of mine now, Mike McCarthy. Mike, you know, shares a lot on LinkedIn now, but but Mike is a former BBC reporter, journalist, um, very sadly lost his son, 31 years old, uh, his son Ross, in the February of 2021, so just gone past the first anniversary. Um, and um, I think Mike has shared something on LinkedIn, I engaged with him, and we, we just messaged each other privately that led to me going to have lunch with with Mike in in June in fact uh, I was just looking June the 13th of last year uh, we're coming close to first date we we just met outside a, a pub at a, at a bistro there for the first time and um, and then he came to Harrogate we had lunch and we, we just became good friends and kept in touch with what we were doing but Mike Mike after the conference we were having a conversation with Paul and Mike and a couple of others and you know, so well, kind of what happens next? I mean, you asked me off air before we started, are you going to do another conference? Yeah. And, and that was probably on the agenda until Mike came up and, you know, we said, what else should, could we do? Is it another conference? What is it? I think it was Mike that said, you know, well, I, I quite like the idea of doing a march, maybe a march to Downing Street. And we all went, oh, well, hey, oh well, is this like a political march? <laughs> Throw yeah. a brick through Downing Street window or something. Yeah. Um, so we were, were, I think it kind of, we were all a little uncertain about this, but as the conversation got going, I can't remember who it was, said, remember London 2012, the Olympics, all the torch-bearing processions, people in white tracksuits, all these hundreds of thousands of people coming out on the street. Could we do that for suicide prevention and awareness? And we said, yes, we could do that. And now the craziest of ideas has seen us commit to the summer of 2023, the baton of hope. The baton is being designed by the same people that produced the FA Cup trophy, the wow. Six Nations Rugby trophy and the MCC and Ryder Cup trophies. We have one of the largest uh, logistics events planning companies, PR and marketing companies, uh, Bray Leno working with us to help us put the event together. We have a commitment from BBC Breakfast to run regular slots with us and the Baton of Hope wow. from this summer through to next year. And we have the government and the Department of Health and Social Care on board. And it's happening. It will be a tour of a baton, physical baton, from Scotland through Northern Ireland, Wales and the UK to a resting place yet to be decided upon in London. There will be regional events taking place all across the country that will be raising awareness about suicide, normalising the conversation, which is really important, but also demonstrating the practical solutions we'll be expecting the nhs we'll be expecting schools and the education sector communities workplaces the digital community all kinds uh, we've got 10 different demographic audiences that we'll be reaching out to with manifestos for each of them of what we would expect you to do as a post-event mm. legacy if you like 
you know, the actions that you should be taking within your environment. And that is the important thing for us, that there'll be clear actions that we'll expect. And, and just to give you an example, one of the things we're looking at at the moment is to say, if you, if you look at one audience being the general public, what is an action they could all take? Mm. Well, they could all leave that two-week event and go and book themselves on a suicide prevention course online. We've got a few, you know, few names in the frame that we know we're probably going to go with when we announce it there, but we can measure that. We mm. can look at the peak and say how many people did go away and book themselves on and complete that, that training. So with each of the audiences, there'll be some very specific objectives and goals that we'll be looking to measure. It will be, without question, now the biggest suicide awareness and prevention event this country has, has seen with a, an incredible amount of planning. So we expect that we'll be able to officially announce to everybody how they can get involved uh, through the official comms probably by the end of June. Yes. Uh, 2022 um, at the moment we're getting calls and messages daily going how can I get involved what can I do and going, we're still planning because there is a phenomenal amount to, to plan at the moment but it's exciting it's massive you know I think we all recognize those of us that are on the organizing committee this is probably the biggest thing we'll ever do in our lives I think and we're hoping it will make the biggest difference yeah, I, it certainly sounds amazing. Every time I see it on LinkedIn, I'm like, I'm one of those people, like, how can I get involved? Where, where's it going to be? Is it coming to Vice City? Because it just shows the, I think it's one thing to kind of put a tweet out and it's not disrespect to anyone, but like, you know, to kind of say, hey, let's talk, let's talk. It's time to talk and have a cup of tea with your friend. And it's like, well, that friend might not be ready to hear about my problems because they're not necessarily equipped. So what is it that you can do? What would you say to someone who is struggling say they're at home they're struggling with their mental health they don't necessarily have the support around them they don't know where to go to help yeah uh, and, and look I think one of the one of the problems that we've got if I call it a problem is that in some ways it's a good problem to have there is so much out there that people could get help and support from from great third sector and charitable organizations it's almost too too much it, it's you know you can google I'm, I'm struggling or whatever it would be and, and you just overwhelmed well what's right right for me and one of the things we've tried to do through the jordan legacy website so if people go to the jordanlegacy.com website and go to the help menu they'll see a number of drop down options we're still in the really early stages of this yeah. but what i wanted to do is create a series of help menus to say i'm struggling with my mental health or i you know think i have an eating disorder or whatever it would, would be. And they go, oh, yeah, that's what I think I have. Without necessarily labeling that person, they could go, and that's why I wanted to use that kind of language on there. Yeah, what's that all about? And, and within there, there'll be several resources where people could, could go. And it could be, I'm just struggling with my mental health. Okay, well, I'll go to that resource and there'll be everything from Samaritans and mine yeah. to the Hub of Hope and Doc Ready to prepare for a doctor's meeting so you're not, scrambling to think what is it I'm supposed to be telling the doctor you know doc ready is a fabulous thing you know, like a template to prepare you for a meeting so at the moment you know say go to the jordanlegacy.com because you know we've tried to put some resources very for very specific areas of help and we're, we're about to have the second generation of the website developed over the next few months where we really want to extend that help and support as I say we're not a crisis website but we are a practical solution organization but we want to have practical resources that we know we trust 
and we have kind of experience of those people as, as well. So what would I say? I would say, yeah, come to the Jordan Legacy website, go there. I'm going to say the obvious thing here, you know, I'm kind of hesitating to do, but there is hope. Darkest, darkest, and, and your evidence of this, Shayla, <laughs> you really are looking at you smiling. I know on the podcast people are only going to hear us probably, but, you know, and I know where you were from the conversations yeah. we had, you know, right in the beginning. There is hope that, that the challenge is that if you let yourself get to a point where you've lost all that hope and you feel so entrapped in whatever it is that's entrapped you, that might be too late. Yeah. And, you know, at the very beginnings where you think you're starting to struggle or wherever you are on the journey, I think it is important to, to reach out and get get some help. And um, gosh, I want to avoid saying it's not weak and all those kind of things. It's not. Look, it's not. One in four people, you know, in our country experience a mental health problem every year. More than 70% of people said they've had some kind of anxiety disorder. Yeah, if, you know, we, we don't want to normalize this, so we all live through this, but, but recognize that you are not alone with what you're going through. There is a solution. There is hope. You have to get up and go out and find that hope. Yeah. Because for all kinds of reasons, it's unlikely to come knocking at your door. Yeah, 100% agree. And I think it was one of the things that you said was, what if you didn't feel like this? You know, how would your life look and sort of, what if you weren't feeling this? And I was like, but I am. And then you were like, well, what if you could get support to kind of get yourself out of that? And I was like, hang on a minute, he's got a point. He's got a point. (laughs) Um, I I have to tell you, that comes from my days as a trained coach. I used to really irritate my clients. And I I used to say, but but what if you could achieve that? But I can't, I can't. I said, yeah, no, I understand that. But but what if you could? And and they just look at me with this really frustrated thinking, I know I've got to answer this question um, because I was just not going to let go of it. And I, so I use a lot of kind of what I've learned from my coaching profession in, in kind of the work I do now really and, and that annoys people in the same way so. yeah, <laughs> and I think I read on your LinkedIn you said um, and you mentioned it earlier on your friend said the bottle's never going to say no to you yeah, what yeah was that was... about what was like that turning point where I'm sure mentally you weren't just like yeah let's just start the Jordan legacy there was a turning point for you as well yeah I mean look you know I think you do feel like you, you, your world has been shattered. You, you want to kind of give up everything. And, and yes, the, the, the bottle was an option to a degree. I think it was always never really going to be an yeah. option for me because I'm just not that kind of person. But I don't know if there was a specific t- t- turning point other than what I said right at the beginning. The, the article was the tipping point and the response to that. But I think what you know, one of the things I'd say, and, and, you know, I'm going to talk now to just, just briefly to anyone who's kind of bereaved by suicide. And I, you know, I have so many people message me each week who, who are sadly. Um, and, you know, how do you move forward? You have to have some kind of purpose. And, and for me, that purpose in the first few days and weeks was somebody has to organize the funerals. Somebody has to deal with Jordan's affairs and contact the bank and, and the mortgage company and the utilities. And, you know, I remember being at his house on that first day and uh, there was, a you know, the doorbell went and there was the gas board guy come to read the meter. Wow. You know, on the day we just, you know, got to the house and you think this stuff's got to be dealt with, you know, 
you know, and I remember the look on his face when I kind of told him why I was there and uh, think, God, you know, should I have told him that? Should I have said yeah. something else? But so right from the beginning, I was immersed in having to do something. So I had to get up each day. I had to do that because I can't, maybe it's the male thing again. I felt I was the one that had to do that. And, and everyone else in Jordan's family was just kind of really, really struggling um, and uh, as well, of course. But um, as the weeks went by and I was dealing with everything from coroner's office to the police and, and, and everything else, it just became part of me doing stuff. So, you know, I think, you know, when I look back and say, how did I grieve? And yeah, I don't think I ever have fully spent time doing that um, at all. You know, I have my moments, of, of course, very personal, quiet moments away from the work I do e each day and they're hard. But I remember a year or so ago thinking, when will that point come where I just crumple in a, in a heap somewhere? And although there were odd moments where that physically happened, I now recognize that I don't think that will happen. Mm. I think I've got myself to a point now where, as we do, when you lose someone to suicide, you endure what's happened, you survive it, yeah. you don't get over it, and you find a purpose to make some sense of it all and, and importantly help kind of make a difference so it doesn't happen to others. And so I think that is my kind of rest of my life kind of mapped out in terms of the journey, really. Yeah, and I think since following you, I've seen that sort of community that's been around you that have also been bereaved by suicide but there's a lot of people it's almost like a weekly sort of thing and you, but you've all kind of come together and supporting each other and actually giving other people hope and I just think wow you know like yeah some very special people uh, you know and, and that number has grown by so many that sometimes I'm very conscious of not having been in touch with one of them for a while it's just yeah. the, the, the nature of you know, I, I haven't looked recently, but I think the latest follower numbers on LinkedIn for me were about 48,000 or something like that. It's it's just just trying to keep paddling under the table sometimes to kind of keep up. But there are some very special people that I do look out for. And you know, I certainly think I've not heard from them for a while and yeah. drop a message to see how they're how they're doing. So, uh, yeah. Well, it's been amazing talking to you. You've certainly gave me hope at my darkest moment and you've done some amazing, amazing work and, you know, I hope it continues and I look forward to everything that you've got planned. Thank you, Shelley. It's been a great conversation. I think we've covered a huge amount of stuff yes. as, as, as always, but no, thank you for allowing me to kind of share what we're doing and what, what's going on. And importantly, thank you for kind of trusting me over the last couple of years as, as well and, and sharing your journey. And uh, as I say, just just great to to be able to see you smiling and see you here, here today. And yeah, look forward to us keeping in touch. Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much.